Okay. So we are in Romans 7, verses 7 through 8 to. I'm just giving Marjorie a little bit of time to come in. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. So, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. We went too far, I think. Yeah. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, 
has set you free from the law of sin that gives death. This is the word of the Lord. So let's figure out where we are in Romans, all right, the larger movements of the book. I needed to start this week remembering what is Romans about? And I loved what theologian John Taves says in this quote, Romans aims to strengthen the life of the Roman house churches in the direction of unity. The goal of the letter is to persuade the Roman churches to adhere to shared beliefs and values, to see the gospel as the power of God for the salvation of all people, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Chapter seven is placed in the middle of this section that F.F. Bruce, another theologian calls the gospel according to Paul, which stretches from chapter one to 11. And so we're here in the middle as Paul is explaining what the gospel is to him, right? The gospel according to Paul. And he's sharing, laying out these shared beliefs and values to which we are basing, they are basing unity. And Paul is going to here defend the law. All right, he's talked about the law a number of times already. I mean, I feel like almost every other week um, it's referenced in our sermons. It's because there's um, verses here or there that reference the law, the law being um, the first books of the Bible that the Jewish people had lists of practices. So much of what their faith was based on before Christ came. We can see a few of these instances. Verse, uh, so I have these um, up there on a slide, Marie. So chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, no one will declare righteous in God's sight by the words of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Chapter four says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. And he goes on in that passage to say, no, Abraham is justified through faith, not the law. And so Paul has named the law a number of times, but we should see this passage as like his ultimate throwdown of like, okay, guys, here we're going deep about the purpose of the law. All right. So that's basically what chapter seven is about is Paul's defense. Why we have the law. Why they had the law. It's important for us to take note of the repetition that we've experienced, we've heard already in Romans about the law, right? This gets our attention that the role of the law was significant for unity, right? That they needed to figure out a new relationship with the law, its significance in their life to bring unity between the Jewish and the Gentile people. Paul's bringing this up because the Jewish people were fixated on the law and it was breaking unity. So Paul wants to explain how the law isn't bad and how it didn't produce sin. He wants to get into the details to explain its relationship with sin. So as he defines the purpose of the law, he's asking two questions. 
First, is the law sinful? And secondly, is the law responsible for death? And each time he says, no, no way. I love how Ian said that the other week, like, heck no. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying, right? In verse 13, <coughs> excuse me, which we have as a slide also. He's answering by saying, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So Paul is giving two reasons in response to this question for why the law exists. He says, number one, that sin might be seen, that it is unmasked. And secondly, that sin might become exceedingly sinful. The law draws the boundaries which people, which people then cross. And so it is not responsible for the fact that people cross it, right? N.T. Wright gives this great analogy of how the law is similar to an alarm system. So there's this guy who, there's been a lot of burglaries in his neighborhood, so he figures, hey, I want to upgrade my alarm system. So he, you know, he gets the company to come on out, but then the day that they come, he's sick. And so he asks his neighbor, listen, let's call him Joe, neighbor Joe, you know, Joe comes over to open the door to get, let the workers come in and set up the alarm system. And, you know, they work a few hours and then they need to show Joe how this thing works, right? So the owner knows how to enable it and to work and to feel safe, right? So the law is this alarm system. It's there to protect you, to produce life, to be good, to take care of you. The air comes in if you have an untrustworthy neighbor, right? In this situation, man, Joe, who might be a really good person who's never stealing his life, stolen in his life might think, oh man, well, what a chance I have, right? I could totally come disarm this thing, take this, uh, I don't know, nice TV. Maybe that's too obvious, something small, <laughs> right? Maybe it starts to tempt Joe of like, I could do this thing and maybe get away with it. The alarm system isn't bad. It unmasks the, the sin in the neighbor, the potential there of the neighbor, at least internally, even if he never acts on it. I think about how Matt and I intentionally choose to not draw attention to things sometimes that we know aren't good for Evelyn or Taylin because as soon as we do, you know, they're gonna be drawn to it, right? I think most parents can relate or there's even something in your life, right? It's human nature. As soon as you're told not to do something, you're kind of like, oh man, I got that itch to do it. So like here, Taylin's 22 months old. She's like our climber, adventurer. She loves to jump off of things. We could every week come and say, Taylin, don't jump off the steps in the foyer. But we don't, 
we kind of wait to see if she's going to try it before we bring it up, right? The steps are a good thing. <clears throat> the stairs aren't bad. They're used, if they're used at the right time in the right way, it's great. But maybe for a 22-year-old month, month old who likes to jump off things, we got to be careful. <laughs> so as Paul is defending the law, he uses this I statement, which I used to think was Paul just giving like the story of his life. But as I got into the commentaries, I've heard a number of people challenging that idea and saying that actually Paul is not speaking about himself, but he's speaking as I more generally, speaking as the Israelites. I think Gary kind of reminded us of this concept in his um, intro sermon to the series when he talked about you as y'all. You know how Paul says that? So I think it's a similar situation here. You can't read it as a, as a pronoun that we're used to. Paul here is speaking for Israel. So perhaps we could understand verse 15 instead this way. Israel does not understand what Israel does. For what Israel wants to do, Israel does not do. But what Israel hates, Israel does. Think of the relief that Paul's audience would have had, the Gentile audience would have had, when he is stressing the point that Israel is also sinful. These people who have come back with their law that says, no, Gentiles, this is actually what you need to do, and you need to do it better. I think I would have felt relieved to recognize, man, we have the shared belief of we're all sinful, we're all at fault. Here's a quote from Taze that explains it <clears throat> more. The gift of the law serves to focus and concentrate sin. The law magnifies sin within Israel. It could not do that anywhere else because no other people had the law. Israel's sin is particularized, brought together in one people and one place to make possible particular salvation for all. Salvation through one person in one place for the cosmos and all human beings. Now that's good news. Amen? So plug for next week, come on out to hear how sin is dealt with. But first, what does this have to do with us? Paul is clarifying the purpose of the law because the Jewish people have become fixated on it, right? They're using it as a means to prove themselves, to prove their holiness, their worthiness. So Paul is stressing the shared experience of sin and therefore the need for Christ. So what this means for us, there's two points I want us to look at. One, your fixations point to your sin. And two, if you are willing, your sin will point you to Christ. 
let's break this down. So your fixations point you, points to your sin. That which you're fixated on might not be right or wrong. It's the act of being fixated, of using it and holding it. This thing that you're attached to, Ignatius calls a disordered attachment. When you hold it, when you use it then to define your being, your identity, your purpose, your meaning. Those of us who've spent the majority of our life in the Christian church, I think are not that different from the Jewish people and their fixations. I think we tend to be fixated on the Bible, its lists of do's and don'ts, making it a God unto itself, using it as a means of defining us and them in and out. It's really easy to fall into that trap because humans, we're looking for meaning. We're looking for clarification and definition. Man, it takes a lot more work in your spiritual life, in your journey with God to figure out specifically the right call for you rather than following a list of do's and don'ts, right? It's like sometimes this nice thing to just fall back on, right? Like, oh, let me just, just give me the rules, right? Oh man, that reminds me, not planning to tell this, but I think in college, man, I was so stressed. Like, what am I gonna do after graduation? I remember talking to uh, my supervisor, those uh, mentor, and I was just like, I wish I was married. So somebody would just tell me what to do, which I obviously don't really agree with. And he said, Marjorie, is that the kind of husband you want? I said, no way, <laughs> right? But sometimes we face that in life. You're like, man, I just want somebody to tell me what to do. It's so much easier. Right? actually takes so much more work and vulnerability to get to a place where you're deciding together with God, you're discerning with God what is right. These fixations that we have as Christians don't just exist in the conservative church, but in the progressive as well. So I read this book recently called The Critical Journey. I'm curious, has anybody else read it? It's not very popular, so, <laughs> but it's blowing up my mind right now. Um, for those of you who know the Enneagram and you remember when you first learned it and how it blew up your mind, that's kind of where I'm at right now, um, where it like take, it's taking the way I think about life and people and kind of blowing it up and giving me a new paradigm, a new language. And so um, I do think it relates a little bit. So I wanna give you like some broad strokes. The critical journey lays out stages of faith in the Christian journey. And it recognizes that developmentally, there is a process of acknowledging that in the beginning of a Christian journey, we need external factors to help us recognize where we belong, how to find community. And in the first three stages, you're there just in the, it's mainly focused on the external. You're discovering God, you're in awe, you're recognizing your need. And then you move to finding those people, creating that place of belonging. And then there in that place of community, you start asking, how can I serve? Where am I gifted? What can I give? And then there's a huge shift in the next stage. It begins to go from the external to the internal, 
where you, if you don't internally, if you don't make a conscious choice to do the internal work, to take your faith inward, to do some hard emotional psychological work and healing, if you don't allow yourself to ask difficult questions, to perhaps search for direction rather than for answers, you get stuck. You get stuck in a faith that becomes rigid. You get stuck in a faith that's us versus them. So the authors recognize that developmentally this happens, that really you get to a place where you choose to focus on the external or the internal. You get to a place where you become either become rigid and you get fixated or you be, choose to become more open and accepting. The author stresses this happens across the conservative progressive spectrum. I know a lot of us come from backgrounds that we don't necessarily relate to now in our faith. But I think we can't just look at them and say, oh, those churches are so fixated on their list of do's and don'ts, who's in or who's out. But to consider how are we fixated? What fixations are breaking unity at redemption? See, these fixations point out our sin. They always exclude. And like those stages of faith I kind of laid out, there's a, a place where you either choose fixation and exclusion or you choose self-examination. So that's why Paul is stressing the purpose of the law because he longs for unity and he's seen that the fixation the Jewish people have on the law is breaking of their unity. So what is perhaps breaking our unity or could break our unity? Rigid views on politics, sexuality, how to raise kids in the church, or defining evangelicalism. But those don't just happen like in the big out here. They happen first here in our hearts. What are you fixated on? What are you holding on to rigidly? This points to our sin. This holding language is so interesting to me. <clears throat> I resonate, it, resonate with it quite a bit and I imagine you do too. I think there's a time in which we begin, right, to hold on to the fixations. It's like a clenched fist. I know, though, I've experienced it where then suddenly at one point, it feels like it's wrapped around you, that you can't break through, that you're stuck, that you're slowly being, the life is slowly being squeezed out of you because of this thing that you're fixated on. Psalm says, the cords of death entangle me. Here in this passage, verse 24, he's, Paul says, 
What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? These fixations begin to produce death in us. Can you relate to Paul's desperation? That longing to be free? Our sin is that which is producing death to which we cannot overcome, which we need to be rescued from. So if you are willing, your sin will point you to Christ. In our fixations, we, our, our sin is revealed. We see it, right? And Paul is stressing that willpower is not enough to overcome it. Right? I think sometimes we use fixations as our attempt to overcome sin. The Jewish people are doing it to prove their worthiness through the law. And we become rigid to prove our rightness, to prove our meaning and our value and our identity. It's vulnerable to admit that we cannot overcome sin. That we can't try harder. That we are not strong enough. Christ is the only power strong enough to overcome the power of sin. Verse 25, Paul says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Take that in, friends. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We must acknowledge our sin in order to acknowledge our need for Christ, to receive his deliverance. In willingness and surrender, we let Christ be strong enough. And in surrender, we let go of our fixations. 